Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At the time of this recording, at the end of June 2021, new guidelines just came down from the World Health Organization two days ago, urging all of us, people around the world, to continue to wear masks to protect against the spread of COVID-19. Yeah, I know. I can't believe we're still doing this. But for many of us, they're asking us to put our masks back on because they specifically address people who are vaccinated, asking those of us who've gotten our shots, if we've taken off our masks, thrown them away even, to go back to wearing them in public. That's because there's a new variant called the Delta variant of the coronavirus that's more infectious, and it's spreading, quickly becoming the dominant variant, even in countries who are well-vaccinated. One of the WHO senior advisors, Dr. Bruce Aylward, said, if you have eased up, go back to washing your hands and social distancing, quote, with much more care. Dr. Maria Van Kerkhove, and I hope I pronounced that correctly, she said, and she's a technical lead at the WHO on COVID-19, she said, this is important because there are many places that are still struggling with infections, states in the United States that are not even close to fully vaccinated. And these guidelines that have held back the virus, though they are working, quote, there may be a time when this virus evolves and these countermeasures don't. As in, these countermeasures don't work anymore. So to stop that, they need people to go back to being very safe. Now, I plan on doing another episode about vaccination, on why efforts to vaccinate the public in the United States have stalled in recent weeks. You may recall last year we did an episode about how it was likely to happen based on everything we know about human psychology, specifically tribal psychology, conspiratorial thinking, partisanship, and so on. If you'd like to listen to that episode, it's 189. And like I said, soon I will release a follow-up episode specifically addressing why only 36% of people in Mississippi are vaccinated, 35% in Alabama, 37% in Louisiana, 42% in Georgia, 47% in Texas, and so on. You can see the numbers for your state at the Mayo Clinic's website. I'll have a link for it in the show notes. But the point is that these numbers could be much higher. Vermont, for example, is at 74%. But here's the thing. I've been doing a lot of traveling since March, since I got fully vaccinated, gathering interviews for both this podcast and for a spinoff of this podcast that will release next month on the streaming service Himalaya. Now, that's a show all about what does the word genius really mean? And I'll tell you all about that soon. But to do that show, I wanted to spend time with people who either they had very high IQs or they were considered geniuses by others. And I wanted to do all that in person. And I noticed in California and New York, where people are highly vaccinated, people were still wearing their masks. But in Texas, pretty much no one was wearing a mask. So... I eavesdropped on some internet chatter and on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, and so on, people who were on the left politically, they often said, even though they could take off their masks, they just didn't want to. 
often because they didn't want to be misidentified as an anti-masker. They didn't want to be identified as a person whose politics motivated them to rebel against institutions like the WHO and the CDC and so on. Others who were still wearing their masks were afraid of people who might refuse to vaccinate being around them. You just can't tell who is and who is not, and many people just want to play it safe. So given all of this, since I'm finishing up this genius project right now, I thought it would be a good time to re-release this episode from exactly one year ago, all about why some people at the height of the pandemic refused to wear masks. And when we return in a few weeks, we will explore why some people still refuse to get vaccinated. And with that, please do get vaccinated if you can until we're all vaccinated I'm going to be following the advice from the World Health Organization, and I guess I'm buying a fresh pack of masks for myself. So, here it is. An episode from one year ago, all about the psychology of anti-maskers. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 209. This is an episode about why some people refuse to wear masks during a pandemic, why they get mad about it, why they are viscerally upset over the very idea of masks in general. We're going to explore all that and we're going to get into the science behind it. But before we get into the ins and outs of why this would be a thing, we need to lay some groundwork. And it starts about two years ago when we explored on this podcast, on two separate shows, an idea that at the time was just becoming top of mind, both in political science, social sciences, and in public discourse within pop culture and politics, social media, meme space, all of that. There are a lot of terms for it in psychology and in political science and sociology and so on. I called it tribal psychology, but it's also called partisanship, cultural cognition, things like that. It's the idea that humans are motivated reasoners who consider the outcomes of thinking and feeling certain ways based on the goals they're trying to achieve. And in service of those goals, like belonging, which is so vital to our survival, humans will value being good members of their tribes much more than they value being correct. So much so that we will choose to be wrong if it keeps us in good standing with our peers. Now, this is not entirely irrational. A human alone in this world faces a lot of difficulty, but being alone in the world before modern times was almost certainly a death sentence. So we carry with us an innate drive to form groups, join groups, remain in those groups, and oppose other groups in times of conflict. There's so much to say about tribal psychology, but I think we can boil it down to four principles. And let's go through them right now. 
The principle one is that humans aren't just a social animal, we are an ultra-social animal. We're the kind of primate that survives by forming and maintaining groups. And so a lot of our innate psychology is all about grouping up and then nurturing that group, working to curate cohesion. If the group survives, we survive. So a lot of our drives, our motivations, our mental states like shame, embarrassment, ostracism, empathy, and so on, have more to do with keeping the group healthy than keeping any one member, which we do care about when we have the luxury to care about it. But since keeping the group healthy is more important than keeping any one person healthy, including ourselves, we are willing to sacrifice ourselves and others for the group if it comes to that. Principle two is that a lot of what we think of as our identity is, for the most part, that which identifies us as being a member of the group. And in foundational research into this, research by Henri Tajfel, he found that there was no, quote, minimal group paradigm. Humans not only instinctively form groups, they will form those groups in seconds and over anything, no matter how arbitrary or minimal. He started with dots on a page, and he gave people a few seconds, then asked them to estimate how many they saw, and then he told them randomly that they were either overestimators or underestimators. And from that moment forward, their behavior changed. Here's political psychologist Liliana Mason from one of those episodes discussing this. Long story short of this, is essentially, uh, Tajfel called it the minimal group paradigm experiment because he gave people group identities that were minimal, that were essentially meaningless. So um, had people estimate the number of dots they saw and called, you know, half of them overestimators and half of them underestimators or told them they liked the, you know, he asked, he showed them art and then said, well, you are a fan of Kandinsky. And um, so various different, you know, group identities that they had just learned about right there. Uh, they were all alone in the room. They were never going to meet other people who were in their group. Um, and then they were asked to do a money allocation task. And the way that I describe it, sort of the most, the sort of easiest way to describe it, it's not exactly what happened, but this is the principle. Essentially, he said, choose between these two scenarios. Either you, overestimators and underestimators, let's say, both groups can get $5, or um, your group can get four, but the other one gets three. And he was assuming that at this very minimal level of group attachment, there would be no bias against the other group. And he was going to start there and then try to add conditions to see, you know, what, where does the bias come in? And in fact, what he found was that people consistently preferred to have the win condition over the sort of what I call the greater good condition where everybody gets the most. Even when they, you know, they had just learned they were in this group, they had never met another group member, and they were sitting there all by themselves. Uh, they still preferred to actually spend money in order to beat the other team. Which brings us to the third principle. Once you can identify us from them, you start favoring us over them, so much so that given a choice between an outcome that favors both groups a lot or one that favors both much less but still favors yours more than theirs, that's the one you will pick. So if you add any conflict over resources of any kind, humans will instinctively enter us versus them thinking, even if that's not the overall most beneficial strategy for everyone. And this is where tribal psychology gets really weird. 
The fourth principle. Though we would like to think that political groups hold positions on issues based on their shared values, values which are the basis of the group itself, in times of great conflict where groups are in close contact with one another or communicating with each other a lot, they will work extra hard to identify themselves to each other as us and not them. In such an environment, anything can become a signal of loyalty, and how you signal will paint you as a good, loyal member or a traitor. What you wear, the music you like, what car you drive, all that stuff. But the really weird thing is that if an attitude or a belief or a stated opinion on an issue that is not political becomes an identifier that you are in one group and not another, then holding that attitude, believing that belief, and stating that opinion will be transformed into a badge of loyalty or a symbol of shame. Believing and feeling one way or the other will become a signal to others that you are either us or them. Here's psychologist Dan Cahan with an example. The one I think is the most instructive um, as a case study is the HPV uh, vaccine for the human papillomavirus. Um, it's an extremely uh, common sexual disease, um, upwards of 75% of uh, sexually active people in their 20s, or early 30s are going to have um, been exposed to the virus. Um, and it's it, not, only, not only the leading cause, but probably the only cause of cervical cancer um, and kills in the United States, about 3,000 women a year. The vaccine was introduced as a as one to be given to school uh, middle school girls, um, and people know the story. You know that, that uh, somebody comes knocking on the door and they say, "Hey, you know your your daughter in the backyard over there on the swing, the 12 year old who's going to be having sex next year. You know she needs to get an STD shot, or or don't bring her to school." Um, and they think, "Well, it's just obvious there's going to be a, a culture conflict on that." Um, the, the, the reason to doubt that, though, is that at the same time that we were fighting about the HPV vaccine, um, the uh, acceptance, the, the vaccination rate for the HBV vaccine, hepatitis B, um, which is also a, a sexually transmitted disease, um, was at 95%. It is, nobody was arguing about that one, even though it came just a couple years before. Um, the difference is that people learned about the HBV vaccine from their doctors, um, it wasn't politicized. Um, the HPV vaccine, however, they learned about probably by watching MSNBC and, and Fox News, you know, where the, the message was, it's us versus them again. Um, and that occurred because uh, the manufacturer took a very unorthodox route to try to introduce the, the vaccine. The makers of HPV vaccine sought early approval, and they also sought to make it mandatory. Now, early approval means debate in Congress. Mandatory means debate in state legislatures. Both means that people with zero scientific knowledge raised questions about why this was a mandatory vaccine for girls instead of boys. The public then first learned about the HPV vaccine by watching reports on MSNBC and Fox News where the message was framed as a moral issue, which made it an us-versus-them issue which made it a tribal issue. And, and anything that's before the legislature is just kind of raw meat um, for the conflict entrepreneur groups on both sides of these issues, the right and left. Um, and it turned into a question of whose side are you on and who are you? Um, and just it blew up in, in everybody's face. Um, so that was a, a decision um, to take an issue that normally travels down this path where people 
um, are able to recognize what science knows, regardless of their identities, and put it right on the track to become one of the, the, the sad issues where we have this uh, tension between uh, being who you are and knowing what's known by science. And still, today, people who gladly allow their children to get the HBV vaccine are opposed to the identically administered, identical in almost every way, HPV vaccine. Which means that whatever reasons they produce to explain their attitudes are probably not the real reasons unless they admit that their motivation is to be a good member of their tribe and not to hold the correct view on this issue. And no one wants to admit that. You know, there's a real uh, cost to having these these debates about issues like climate change or evolution, um, the HPV vaccine, conducted by these people who are kind of symbols um, of group identity. Um, and, and not only that, but symbols of, of contempt um, for the other. Um, you know, even Bill Nye, the science guy, gets on. You know, he's not convincing anybody um, with his arguments. Um, all he's doing is, is eliciting responses um, and, and injecting this kind of rhetoric himself into the discourse that makes it us versus them um, and says that the them, they're stupid and they're evil. Um, people see that. They're not, uh, they're not processing the content of the arguments. They're processing the signal um, that this is one of those issues where being out of line with your group um, could get you in a lot of trouble. Um, we don't need more amplification of that. Um, we need science communication that shows people um, that people like them, just like them, uh, find the science to be convincing and are, and are using it when they can to try to improve their lives. You put all this together, and it means, as crazy as this is going to sound, we often act as if we disagree on certain fact-based issues, but it's just an act. It's performative. Dr. Liliana Mason, the political psychologist from earlier, she wrote a book about all this called Uncivil Agreement, which, as the title suggests, is an inversion of civil disagreement. The truth is, as she points out, for many issues, we only disagree because that issue has become political. And once an issue is politicized, holding one view or another carries with it social rewards and social costs, and those become the things that we're most concerned about, not the evidence. In fact, when the evidence is presented to us, especially if we're uncertain, we look first to our tribes for cues as to what attitude we should hold. There's a, there's a political scientist named Jeffrey Cohen, who, this is my favorite thing experiment that was ever done, he, he told people um, that there, he gave people a position on welfare, um, and, he, and he experimentally altered it so that, you know, either the Republicans or the Democrats were saying basically the same thing, um, on welfare and, and what, and this, so it's not, it's not an unknown issue, right? It's welfare. And what he found was that he could get people to change their position on welfare a hundred percent based on like all the way to the other side of the spectrum of the, of the policy, just based on what party they were told supported that position. And the crazy thing is that after they said they supported that position, he asked them why they supported that position. And they didn't say, because my party does. They came up with other reasons. So after being experimentally induced into holding a position that they actually didn't agree with, they then came up with reasons 
that they thought they agreed with that. With all this fresh in our heads, there were three strange conclusions in those episodes. The first being what Liliana Mason just said, we are unaware that we are doing all of this. And so since the drives and motivations behind our emotions are so inaccessible to us, the reasons we come up with for those feelings and the thoughts and the behaviors that flow from them are usually just justifications and rationalizations that we produce because we think our trusted peers, the people in our tribes, will find those justifications and rationalizations reasonable. So it's often only at the point of explaining ourselves that we invoke the shared values of our communities, even though the source of what we are explaining may not be those values. It may just be tribal psychology itself. The second conclusion was that the same thing that happened with the HPV vaccine could happen with literally anything. Any fact-based issue can become politicized. Dark matter, volcanoes, net neutrality, self-driving cars, anything, including masks, which we'll get to in a moment. Once evidence is polluted by tribal loyalty, people who are wrong will become trapped in that wrongness, even if the majority of scientists tell them they should change their minds. Which brings us to the big segue. When we are fully engaged in tribal psychology, not only do we divide ourselves into these groups who compete with one another over resources, we start competing with one another over what is and is not true, what is and is not real. Mason used the example of the robber's cave experiment. This was a very famous psychology experiment in which they basically turned a group of fifth grade boys into Lord of the Flies by dividing them into two groups who then became warring tribes. In the end, they had to just end the experiment because they had gotten to the point where they thought maybe these kids are going to hurt each other. Here's Mason explaining what happened there. And not only were they um, being violent, they were they started to sort of perceive reality in a biased way. Um, so they so one group of boys uh, accused the other group of uh, of throwing rocks and ice cubes into their swimming hole because it felt a little colder, and one of the boys stubbed his toe. Um, the other group of boys said that the that the, their opponents had left garbage on their beach when in fact it had been you know the boys themselves and they'd just forgotten about it. Um, they were asked to do a task where they picked up beans off the ground. Um, and then they, the experimenters, which who were being the counselors for the camp, placed the beans on an overhead projector and asked the boys to estimate how many beans there were. Uh, and the boys always estimated more beans for their own team members, uh, but it was the exact same number of beans every single time. It was the same handful of beans every single time. Huh. So, so there, this is this is a really, I, I, it's a great way of getting at kind of you know, in little, in little fifth grade boy form, the ways that, that when you separate people into two groups and they, they create an us and a them, not only do they immediately want to have a conflict, but they also, um, they, but they also actually kind of start perceiving the world in a biased way. Yeah. But there was good news in the end, because in that experiment, they were able to present to those warring tribes a common thread a common goal, a common cause, and with all of that, they found that those two groups were able to rise above their tribal psychology and work together. And Mason 
and others I've spoken to, when we talk about this, this often is the way we like to end. We like to end on a high note saying, but you know what, if let's say aliens came and invaded the planet, we would overcome all these differences against a common threat. And that's something that Mason has believed and said and shared with audiences and journalists like myself. And that brings us to right now, to 2020, to the very middle of the pandemic that we're all having to deal with, that we're all facing COVID-19 and how human beings are reacting to this shared threat. And here's Liliana Mason right now at this current moment discussing how we reacted to it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like I used to say, you know, maybe maybe polarization could be reduced if aliens invaded the Earth. Uh, and this is basically that, right? Like it's, this is a universal threat to all, hum, all humankind. And, uh, and we polarized it. We are being lied to. Our freedoms are being taken forever. And I will not be muzzled like a mad dog. And I will not have my health destroyed because you idiots can't figure, can't read truth. You go along with the lies that are the people who are trying to take down our freedoms and destroy our country. This is sick. You ought to be ashamed of yourself for being a part of this. And I will not be muzzled. And my, and it's time for us to stand up for our freedoms. Because if we stand back and let these pieces of crap handle our freedoms, we will have nothing left. In fact, we'll end up being dead. That's a man from a few weeks ago speaking before his elected representatives at a St. Lucie County Commission meeting in Florida. And he is angry, very angry, about a mask mandate, a requirement to wear masks in public to limit the spread of COVID-19. And he was not and is not alone in that anger. And I'm going to play some audio here that demonstrates everything that we've talked about so far in the show, everything we talked about in those previous episodes all of those principles combined. In a very polarized time, a fact-based issue has become politicized. And now, wearing a mask has become a badge of loyalty or a symbol of shame, depending on who you consider us and who you consider them. This creates extremely powerful emotions because what's at stake is your very livelihood. At least, that's how your brain treats it. You don't want to be ostracized. You don't want to be shamed. But unaware that this is what is motivating those attitudes, people search for reasons, for justifications and rationalizations that people who share their values will consider reasonable when tasked with explaining themselves to others. Here's some people going through all of that. And I would like you to try to attempt to have some empathy for what they're trapped within. These are people in Florida at another public forum, speaking to their local government representatives in Palm Beach County. We will get together and do a citizen's arrest on every single human being that goes against the freedom of choice, okay? You cannot mandate 
You literally cannot mandate somebody to wear a mask knowing that that mask is killing people. It literally is killing people. And my, the people, we the people, are waking up and we know what citizen's arrest is because citizen's arrests are already happening, okay? And every single one of you that are obeying the devil's laws are going to be arrested. And you, doctor, are going to be arrested for crimes against humanity. Every single one of you. Known for communist dictators. Is this the legacy you want to be known for? You want to be responsible for your fear mongering and misinformation fed to your citizens? The problem with humanity today is ignorance, arrogance, and apathy. Keep taking the road of least resistance. Keep listening to the TV brainwashing you from birth. Keep listening to conditioning messages in your local stores while shopping, just like Fidel Castro did over the loudspeakers in Cuba. Don't you see the problem? The truth is out there. Just go seek the truth. If you believe in God, you know he gave us life and he can take away our lives. Where do you derive the authority to regulate human breathing? I ask you this because this is very important. You all are playing doctors and you're not. And God gave us the very breath that we are to breathe. I would also like to know where do you get the authority to reduce my oxygen? Who made you perpetrators over my life? You preach pseudoscience and safety. Does anyone care about preserving the liberty of the people who pay your salaries? My name is Butch, and I'm an American patriot. See that flag? I would die for that flag. The Constitution that you are supposed to uphold? I would die for that. Masks are meant to be worn for sick people. They want to throw God's wonderful breathing system out the door. You're all turning your backs on it. Can you prove that it's good for people to breathe carbon dioxide over and over and over again? And I just, on, on, at the end, I don't wear a mask for the same reason I don't un wear underwear. Things gotta breathe. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that there is, you're, there's, you're right, there's this common understanding that if we, if we face some sort of superordinate common threat then we'll all come together and forget our differences and work together to fight it um and there is research that supports that um but there's also research that's sort of less less read or less discussed which um really started by uh this social psychologist marilyn brewer where she actually lays out a number of conditions under which a superordinate threat will not bring people together and in fact might exacerbate intergroup conflict. And one of those conditions is a lack of trust between the groups. Um, so basically they're not, if groups don't trust each other to deal with the threat correctly, then th the threat itself will drive them apart. And so that's, I think that's what we're seeing is that there's just so little trust between Democrats and Republicans that even though they're perceiving a common threat, they're actually perceiving it in very different ways. Before we get into it, I feel like maybe you're thinking right now, uh, hold on, we're talking about masks here, right? Some fabric you put over your face during a pandemic to stop from getting yourself or someone else sick with something that could kill you or someone you love. This can be politicized. This can be a symbol of tribal loyalty. Yeah, that's what this whole episode's about. 
What is the psychology behind this particular moment, this particular object? And how did it get this way? And if you live in the United States, you already know about this whole anti-mask phenomenon. But if not, you might be surprised to learn it isn't contained to grocery stores and city council meetings. There have been multiple outdoor protests in multiple cities over not wanting to wear a mask. And these protests got violent. Here's some audio from a protest in Texas and a protest in Arizona. able to have fresh air. We were born to have fresh air so that we could breathe to be a human being. And these masks that are being brought to us by Fauci, who is a Jesuit from the Catholic Church, who takes orders from the Vatican, wants to kill people and depopulate the earth. But they put a mask on that and they say, oh, there's a coronavirus. What does corona mean? They want to take the crown of the earth and have dominion and make people die. And very freedoms that so many people fought and died for are being threatened right now by our elected officials. Masks make it difficult for people to breathe. Oxygen is something our, everybody's body needs to fight off disease, whether it's cancer, viruses, bacteria. We need oxygen, and the mask gets in the way of that. This episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Why are so many people refusing to wear masks during a pandemic despite the advice of scientists and doctors? What led to masks, of all things, to become a point of contention? And knowing what we know, how can we prevent this sort of thing in the future? And I want to be clear this is an effort to understand this, not make fun of people who are terrified, confused. And anxious. This is a confusing and mentally taxing moment for all of us. We are all on edge. We are all trying to get through every single day. So this is not an attempt to shame or wag fingers, but just to understand so that we can avoid this sort of thing moving forward because we have to. When the vaccine arrives, according to the experts in this show, we must and can avoid what has happened with the masks. Which, to put simply, is this. In an incredibly polarized moment in American history, when people no longer trust those who disagree with them politically, masks became an identifier, a signal, a visible badge of inclusion in one group or another. And wearing one or not communicates something. It communicates, I'm with us, not them. And we will explore how and why that happened after this break.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just, there's too many, you can't get to everything, and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. 
close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs, and one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. I'm David McRaney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And in this episode, we're exploring why people both are and are not wearing masks during this pandemic at the level of politics, partisanship, psychology, and so on. And when I asked around looking for a scientist who was researching this very thing. Several people pointed me to this one person in particular. I'm Shana Gadarian. I am Associate Professor of Political Science at the Maxwell School at Syracuse University. And I am a political psychologist by training. So I'm actually a political scientist, but I am interested in the ways in which Ordinary people understand the world and politics, especially when politics is in crisis, which it is right now. Dr. Guderian and her team have been surveying thousands of Americans since March, asking them about their behaviors during the pandemic. And her research has revealed some really strange, interesting, fascinating, illustrative, illuminating, troubling things. And we're going to talk about all that right now. Um, so I am currently working on a book project with Sarah Wallace Goodman at UC Irvine and Tom Popinski at Cornell. And we have been surveying um, a representative um, sample of Americans since March. Um, so we asked them things like, are you washing your hands more? Have you canceled your plans? Um, are you, uh, let's see, we asked them a whole set of kind of health behaviors that were kind of best practices at the time. We did not ask about mask wearing in, in March, but we did in our subsequent waves in um, May and June. So what we found is, right, so we have the demographics of these folks. We know what their age is, we know where they live, by um, their zip code, and so we can match them to um, how many COVID cases are in their zip code. Um, we know their their religion and their gender and their income. We know a lot about these folks. Um, and we can model um, statistically 
what determines um, what are the behaviors that they're doing to cope with COVID. And what we see from March, and it has not gotten better over time, is that the like most consistent determinant of whether you're doing things like buying hand sanitizer, washing your hands more, or canceling your plans is your partisanship. So Democrats are more likely to say they're doing things like washing their hands and canceling their plans and social distancing than Republicans. When you, when you model this statistically, the biggest and most consistent gaps in behavior are not age, not where you live, it's partisanship, with Democrats being more likely to report that they're doing things like washing their hands. And, that, and, so, and we see that in our second wave and our, our third wave when we ask about masks. When we ask about masks, we can see the probability of a Republican in our survey saying that they're wearing masks is about 53%. Again, taking account of all of the things that we know about them, their demographics, where they live. And um, the probability of a Democrat saying they're wearing a mask is about 73%. So we have this really large gap um, in between Republicans and Democrats. And I'll just say that the, the models have what we call fixed effects in them for states. So we are comparing Democrats and Republicans within the same states. So this isn't just that people in certain states um, are more likely to have mask mandates than others. We're just we're comparing people within the same states. So we these are kind of really conservative models, but we're still finding these big differences. So no matter where you live, and no matter your race, gender, marital status, income, education, none of that, like all of that is going to affect it in some way. But th this is the thing that, that is determining whether or not the, the, you wear a mask. The thing that has the most correlation is your, your politics. Right. So, I mean, I will say, you know, demographics and age and all those, those age and income and all those things matter. They matter in determining your partisanship first, right? Oh, wow, and they yeah. do have this effect on, on health behaviors. But when you look across all the models, the most consistent predictor of your mask behavior is your partisanship. It's, it's, uh, I think it's easy to say, like, it's easy to be snooty about this and say, look at those people who are... Uh, signal, you know, who are their politics are determining their behavior. I can't believe they're not wearing a mask. But also, at this point, isn't wearing a mask? All, I mean, it's a signal for both sides now, right? So, like, there are people wearing a mask when they don't need to be wearing a mask, um, as, because sure. it's now saying, "Look at me, I'm in this group, and I'm not in the other." It's a signal that I'm us and not them. Um, and I feel like that's probably true for a lot of this, even though it's good that we're doing a lot of these things, social distancing and wearing masks and washing our hands and wagging our fingers at each other. But a lot of that is performative. No, I, I don't, I don't think that's wrong. And so if it is the case that what it now means to be a Democrat is to wear the mask, what it now means to be a Republican is to not wear a mask. Again, I will say like, it is true that in our, in our survey, Republicans are doing these behaviors. They're just not doing them at the same levels as Democrats. But when, it, if it is performative, right? If, right, so you talked earlier about um, what we call affective polarization. That it's not only that we identify with our parties more now, it is that we dislike the other party more now than in the past. 
the reason I think masks have become like the symbol of this whole big fight is exactly what you said, which is that they're very public. You can see it. It is a choice that you have to make that um, people can observe in ways that canceling your vacation or staying at home or washing your hands are much less public. And so even if we have those big differences, they're just less observable in the ways that masks are now quite observable. Um, and, but I do, but it is also the case that like the, you know, we think about type one and type two errors, like false negatives and false positives, even if it were the case, like, so the science seems pretty set that like wearing a mask can protect you and it can protect other people. That's good. Right. But even if it were like, it doesn't harm you, then it, it's probably worth doing even if it's, you know, the benefits are quite small, right? Because the kind of, what's the drawback? Except there is this cycle, right? Like, so, the, and then I, then I think, but there is this psychological drawback for people, right? Again, because we have now, because political leadership has made the mask issue politicized, right, then the cost is to one's identity. Because if it, what it means is to be a Republican is to not wear the mask or fight against the mask or say the mask is stupid, then you're losing something by wearing it in public. Because you're either saying the president, I disagree with the president, or I um, disagree with my governor, or I, you know, I, I don't fully embrace this identity of what means to be a Republican. And, and that's a problem, right? Because like, we need, we need pretty high levels of masking. We need pretty high. And like, I always think about what this means for vaccines down the line. Um, we need very high levels of compliance for vaccines to get to herd immunity. And so if this is going to be a, a fight that replicates for the vaccines, and I actually think that's going to be a step, like a different fight. Um, but if this is a fight that replicates for vaccines, then this is going to be a real problem because we need to get very high levels of compliance um, for the vaccine for this kind of to totally crush the pandemic. Yeah, uh, well, listening to what you're saying, it's like, yeah, I see that. You know, it is. It's a if you. So much of what we do to identify ourselves politically is is you have to wait till you get into an argument with someone to do it. This is a bumper sticker, you know, that you wear on your face. You you, you slap it on your face, and and you might as well be walking around with a little flag as you go through the grocery store. Like, look at me, I am I'm doing the thing. You know, it seems to us who the people who suffer no social costs for doing this, it's just a matter of type one, type two errors, like you were saying, but. For other people, there is a definite risk versus reward uh, because you can't risk losing your social support network. You can't risk being shamed. You can't risk all these other things. There's a definite reason to not do it that isn't irrational. That's not an irrational thing to to be concerned about that stuff, especially if you live in a tight knit small community where it could be it could impact your life. Am I wrong about that? No, I mean, so I have a um, a friend who is originally from the Northeast. She's an epidemiologist by training and she now lives in rural Georgia. 
and was telling me, texted me to tell me that she's being shamed, like mask shamed for wearing a mask. And right. She understands the science of it. Um, and, but this is, this is very like, uh, it's a hard thing. No one wants to be shamed or made fun of. And like the social consequences of these, these choices are not small for a lot of people. And I think that is, is made even greater right in smaller communities. And I do, and I do think this also shows like the importance of the peer networks that we're in because, and how in the absence of strong rules and regulations, the the norms and peer networks matter a lot. So, right. In places where you have to wear a mask to go to, to go to Walmart or to Wegmans where, where I shop, Right. It doesn't matter if your friends like the mask or not. You're just going to have to do it. But in places where those regulations are are lighter and you have to make a choice, then those norms and those peer networks are really important. Um, and they could keep you from doing something that is probably in your best interest and in the collective interest. I'm wondering, how did this happen? I understand though it seems strange that anything can become politicized, but how did masks, of all things, become a signal of us versus them? The way in which people understand the world, right, and the political world in particular, is when things are very uncertain, which they are, and when things are very fast-moving, which they are, right? Particularly, the mask issue is one that is is actually a little confusing to people. While it seems pretty straightforward that the messages early on from the CDC were you shouldn't wear a mask unless you are at very high risk. We don't have enough PPE for healthcare workers. So you probably shouldn't wear a mask. And if you wear a mask, it's not to protect yourself, it's to protect other people. And I think all of that was a very um, unclear and muddled message. So if you are a person who doesn't pay close attention to politics, right, even in the midst of a pandemic, you don't really know what you're supposed to do. And the messages from our public health agencies and from the CDC were very, like I said, muddled early on. They've become clearer as the science has become clearer. So, okay, so I'm in a world where things are scary and uncertain. The people who are in charge of public health aren't giving me very clear messages. Where else can I turn to to find information about what I should do? Well, okay, the people who... Um, lead the political party that I lead to are another, because public health is not a separate entity from government. It is part of government, right? So who else should I turn to? I should probably also turn to the political leaders in, um, in my party who I trust. And, and as it turns out, the political leaders of the Republican Democratic Party were giving very different messages about masks. I mean, if you look at when Congress comes back into session, Democrats are wearing masks. Republicans are not. Um, the president refused to wear a mask until very recently. It is July, right? We've been living with this pandemic for a long time. And not only does he refuse to wear a mask, he actually tells people that they shouldn't, essentially. So 
I, I think that, w- you know, what we know about how people take political cues is when, again, when they're very uncertain, they're going to turn to those people that they trust. And when the, the kind of public health experts aren't giving very direct and clear messages, they're going to turn to someone else. And that, and that's the political leaders of their parties. And the, again, the parties were different in what they were, um, they were suggesting that people do. And, and and you mentioned in the paper, and and you you cite all the sources for this. It's not just uh, something we are remembering in some weird way. Uh, the Trump administration did a number of things, uh, calling it the Chinese virus, calling it the Wuhan virus, comparing it to the flu, comparing it, saying it was under control, saying the government was doing a great job. And the CDC, as you and as you mentioned, uh, the WHO, the fact that we was hard to find tests when are we going to have reliable tests when we can we get those tests then and i'm i'm in mississippi so like the different states every state was doing something different it didn't seem like there was a unified idea i mean it's total chaos and as you mentioned like you in that in that state no matter what's going on whether it's a war or a natural disaster you are like okay i need to go get some information and the this inconsistency that you bring up, it seems like um, what would usually happen is that we would look to the elites or and the elites in this regard are going to be the highest we can go up within our own government, which would be the president and so on, or the scientists and doctors who are experts in this field. And you say in the paper, in, the, in, your, in your research that this presented a very bizarre moment for for a lot of us where they were seeming to not agree with each other there seemed to be some sort of strife what does what do people do in a situation like that where they're, the people they're looking to for the information aren't agreeing with each other sure i mean that's that's i think the crux of the issue early on with the health behaviors and later on with the masks so um i have I have earlier work. I have a book in, from 2015 with Bethany Albertson called Anxious Politics. And we look at the role of anxiety in politics across multiple um, policy areas, including public health. And um, so in the book, what we do is we um, induce anxiety ab- about different policy issues. And we see how that affects who people trust and what kind of information they want um, and what kind of policies they want. So in that book, we had a number of experiments where we induce anxiety about public health issues. One issue was a small po- a potential smallpox outbreak, and the other one was H1N1. So what we found in the book was when we made people anxious about these public health outbreaks, what people, and then we asked them a series of questions about who they trusted for about uh, for information about those public health issues. And we gave them the CDC and we gave them, um, it was in 20, about 2011, so President Obama, we gave them a whole number of people they could trust who were relevant and some, and some kind of agencies that were irrelevant and you probably shouldn't trust when you're anxious. And in that work, what we found is when we made people anxious about these health issues, they were more trusting of doctors, they were more trusting in the CDC and the FDA, and it didn't and that anxiety didn't really affect their trust in political leaders and it didn't affect their trust in these kind of more irrelevant types of agencies. Um, and so what we take away from that is when people feel anxious, right, they want to turn to medical experts. They want to turn to the people who can help them kind of feel better and do something about the threat that's causing them anxiety. 
Okay. So like fast forward to this year and I, you know, I go into COVID thinking, oh, well, people, what people want to do is they want to hear from medical doctors. They want to hear from Dr. Fauci. They want to hear from Dr. Burks. And um, what would be great if is when they, they do these press conferences, if the president and the vice president would just let the kind of medical experts speak, because that's who people want to hear from. And that's not at all what happened, right? Right. We get up and we have these press conferences day after day where the president is disagreeing with Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, right? So at the beginning saying this pandemic is not something to worry about. So right, right away, people are not as, there are a lot of people who are worried, but there are some people who are saying, ah, we don't need, even need to worry about this. So if you don't need to worry about it, you shouldn't listen to a doctor, right? You don't need, you don't need anything to kind of feel like anxious because you've already decided you're not going to be worried. And then we have the president who has his own kind of folk theorems about how science works and what is the cure for this disease. And so what happens, right, is when, again, when people don't know who to trust, if you're anxious, you're probably listening to the doctors because you know they know something. But if you're not anxious, maybe you listen to the person who seems like they have answers um, or, you know, right. And so maybe that's the president or maybe that's your kind of favorite media outlet, but it is not, if you're not anxious, right, you're not worried, then you don't need to listen to a doctor because everything is a okay. But that like takes a lot of mental gymnastics to, for people to in the middle of a pandemic think that things are okay. Um, and, and that's, you know, part, part of that is that like the experiences that people had early on with COVID and even now are quite different, right? Like p there are some people who are very much at risk. They know a lot of people who are um, exposed. Um, you know, if you're in New York City, there, you have a very high probability of knowing someone who had or has COVID, probably not has, but had it at some point. Um, but if you're in kind of a rural place, that's probably less likely that you knew someone or you know someone who has had exposure. And so those experiences are really different. And the experts, uh, you know, who you consider to be an expert is going to be different depending on whether or not you're really worried about this or not. So I think that is like one of the really big kind of issues early on is that the medical experts are saying one thing. And again, like they change over time as science changes. And I think that's very hard for people. Okay, let me let me try to wrap my mind around this and correct me where I'm wrong because I will be very wrong. Um, so, partisanship in this country is bonkers right now, and we are very polarized. And uh, there's all sorts of research coming out of Pew and other places that show that people aren't just polarized. We actively don't trust the other side to a degree that's that's just permeating our, every molecule of our daily life. And um, it's ha at, at the elite level that's happening, there's incredible polarization within the government, and then there's incredible polarization just on social media and our day-to-day -day interactions. And and you can't even like say you, that you like a cheeseburger on uh, Twitter without there being some comment about, I tell you, who looks like a cheeseburger? Donald Trump. You know, in the, like it's everything we think about and do. And those people who are like supportive of the current administration and the Republican Party in general, um, you know, that's who they trust. And and generally speaking, I'm just trying to like um, paraphrase you and make it make sense. Generally speaking, 
when we are terrified that we might die from a pandemic, we would look to doctors and scientists for some uh, idea of what to do. But people who are conservative or Republican are are very supportive of Donald Trump are faced with this strange psychological uh, conundrum where they are getting mixed messages from people that they trust. And it's the cue, you know, in this situation, since you are, you, you put yourself in a, um, I must gather more information mode. You go from like read mode to write mode. And you're like, must update models to understand what to do next and plan and all sorts of things that brains do. So you go into this mode where you're like, gather information, look to trustworthy sources, Oh no, trustworthy sources saying different things. It seems to me that there's a calculus that then takes place where you have to default to one or the other. And for people who are really super, super supportive of, of Donald Trump, and that's the person they trust, or at least that administration, um, that's who they defaulted to. Is that sort of what happens here? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. The kind of populist appeal that Donald Trump has is partially about the denigration of expertise. And right. So like, you know, we don't really need, you know, we could have a businessman as president, like people who are politicians don't have any anything special um, to run the country. We can't the kind of everyday person could run the country. Right. That's that's kind of the idea of populism. And I think you actually you absolutely had it when there was this disagreement between the kind of medical experts and Donald Trump people who really trust Donald Trump went with him but partially that's also because he has spent you know a lot of this last you know several years kind of undercutting and denigrating the expertise of all of the institutions of government and the press and all of the other things that people usually turn to um, and kind of has set himself up as the you know, expert in whatever kind of realm that we are talking about, right? So his his theories about trade are better than economists' theories about trade. You know, that's the kind of thing that we're seeing, but playing out with very, very dire consequences in public health. I get it. Yeah, it's, the, it's this whole idea of those people in the ivory tower can't tell me what to do. The scientists, yeah, they have their opinions, but what do they know? Like, you know, these are things that we've, we've all experienced before. And we have people in our families that think that, but that does speak to something like one of my Twitter followers said something that I have repeated over and over again. I have no shame in, in taking this and using it everywhere. They said, we don't live in a post truth world. We live in a post trust world. Blew my mind. Uh, I was like, Oh God, I think that's more right than anything I've ever heard. Cause um, we, I, I hate to not empathize with um people who have a different value system than, than I do. And, and if I try to take a bird's eye view of this and see it as a psychological phenomenon, like a alien, you know, anthropologist would, your alien, you know, scientist would, would do if they came to earth and were like, Oh, let's look at the behavior of these creatures. Um, I trust scientists and academics, but also that's kind of like part of my like type too, right? Like I, I may be placing too much trust in that at times or signaling to other people, look at me, I'm the kind of person that trusts these people, right? And the that is an encroaching politicization of something that is supposed to, the tools of science are supposed to be the very thing we use to reach objective analysis. But 
the idea that you would trust that as an epistemological framework is a politicized thing now. Am I on the right course? Yeah, I think that, you know, trust in science is a really, um, I think that it's a divider across the parties in ways that it doesn't, it certainly does not have to be. But I think in some ways it's also deeper than that, which is this kind of what you pointed out with the lack of trust, I think is really important. Mark Hetherington and others have shown um, about trust in government is extraordinarily low, right? So it's very low in all of our institutions. Um, and that has real um, implications for governance, right? So governance becomes harder when trust in institutions is lower. And, and I do think that this kind of idea of empathy for people who lack trust is also important, right? There are a lot of institutions, um, both at the kind of national level and the, and the state and local level, that people feel have failed them, right? And, and that they don't see that there is, um, there is anything coming from government that is for their benefit, and that it either is benefiting people who don't work as hard or don't look like them, or it is just benefiting rich people and corporations, right? So Kathy Kramer has this book called The Politics of Resentment that came out in 2015 or so, um, where she spent time talking to these kind of local groups in Wisconsin. And she goes and she spent several years um, just visiting these kind of um, people who gather in churches and in gas stations and just have everyday conversations about politics. And she she knows how this kind of lack of trust in the, the this was in Wisconsin in the state government is being played out all over the country, um, and it's just people feeling like again the government takes from them and it doesn't bring anything to their area. And so again, whether that feeling is um, matches up with reality in some ways doesn't matter because it is a real feeling and it has implications for how they vote. Um, and so this lack of kind of trust in government is and trust in expertise is really important. And science does get wrapped up in that in in ways that um, then affect kind of policy attitudes. What What is it that, that is leading to this distrust of science and medicine in and of itself as a as something that it, uh, correlates with a with a political ideology or value system? Yeah. That's a good one. Um, and, and that's a kind of old story about kind of the ways in which um, conservative elites um, in the 60s and 70s want to say, like, look at these institutions of, of government, look at these kind of pointy head intellectuals, and you, you just, the regular people are getting, uh, are not getting what they deserve. And so if we trust these kind of people coming out of Harvard and Yale, and if we trust what they're doing, um, you know, everyday regular people are, are not getting their due, right? And this is, this is kind of a part of the way conservatism sets itself apart in the 60s and 70s. And then you get to um, kind of a point where you conserv the rise of conservative media also has this flavor, which is that the, you know, the institutions of government, the institutions of the mass media are hostile to your values if you're a conservative and hostile to your way of life and they are lying to you and they are, um, and so, and you shouldn't trust them. And therefore, but we're going to set up a whole separate system 
of kind of media ecosystem and like you can trust us. And then part of that is strategic, right? It's like setting themselves aside in the marketplace. And, and some of that is kind of a legacy of the kind of rise of the conservative movement in the 60s and 70s. So I, I think that gets wrapped up in, again, if you if you distrust this whole kind of uh, trust in government and all these other institutions that were set up and, and dominated by Democrats and liberals up into the, you know, from the 40s to the 60s, what goes along with that is per, does not have to be, but can also be, right? Like academia is also hostile to conservatism and conservatives, and that is a kind of that is a set of ideas that is very prominent today. And so, if academia, which is full of people who are um, doing research, is hostile to conservatism, then maybe. Um, also science, right? We can, we can think that maybe science is not actually balanced. It's not fair. Right. And it, it can be, and I, I do think there's like a mix of kind of evangelicalism in, right. They're part of the kind of conservative movement. Um, and this kind of sense that, um, we shouldn't be teaching evolution in schools, or at least we should, um, we should have some alternatives to teaching evolution. I think that's part of the story too, but I think I'm straying a little bit from where, what you asked, but. <laughs> no, you are, no, you are. And, I mean, it, it's it's such a confluence of things. I understand, you know, it's way more complicated than, I mean, it's, I wish it was simple and I want it to be simple, but it's it's so not like, um, <laughs> like I keep seeing the same thing over and over and then kind of, this, this is going to help me segue back into the, your research is that, I want to believe, as everyone does, that we are these objective, rational. I mean, rational is maybe a charge word. We we these we're just objective, fact based reasoners who go, okay, these facts, these facts, these facts, these facts, and here's my conclusion. And the idea that academia or uh, people who use the scientific method as their epistemological framework are doing that makes it seem so neutral and objective. The idea that that entire universe of people would now become a politicized concept to the general public is in and of itself this bizarre snake eating its tail. Oh, my God, I'm in some kind of psychedelic fever dream thought to me <laughs> that um, and I can understand. Yeah, OK, academia and science is going to be a bit um, uh, critical of religiosity and that sort of spiritual religious uh spiritual epistemological frameworks okay that's one knock against it and then um this is these are institutions where people are almost entirely liberally minded and and uh and are actively if they're active politically they are anti the conservative side of politics there's another knock against it and then also they're rich elite people who uh drink lattes and drive you know um <laughs> electric cars and and hold their nose up at uh, people in middle and southern America and make fun of them and consider them like a that they're a drag on progress. Another knock. So now you, I can totally see how over time you would, if you're not a person who engages with that world in any way, you're like, how dare you tell me what to do? I can see that, and it's astonishing to like. Now it's a tr there's tremendous consequences in that. 
Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, I do think the kind of sense that you have, um, I, we have had, I have had conservative students who do feel that the kind of intellectual life at um, my university is, um, looks down on them, right? And I, I think that is a real sense, even now. And um, I think much of that comes from their peers, um, but I, I do think there is a kind of a set that the values that they have, whether they're religious or ideological, are not ones that are widely shared um, at their universities, I think would make you feel like the place is hostile to you and that there might not be a, a place for you. And then the kinds of things that people believe in there might, right, and, and including the scientific method, um, may be... Um, also hostile to your beliefs and how you think about how you kind of reconcile a set of beliefs um, to science, right? If you, they don't seem compatible, I think you have to, I do think that does lead to some people um, just kind of saying the science is, isn't real or it's, or it's flawed and therefore I can kind of do what I want to do. I, I can believe what I want to believe. Um, so I think, it, yeah, the way you put it was was exactly right. So given everything you've seen, you found in your research so far, and sort of everything we're talking about, um, it seems like this is a, an opportunity for science to do what it does and say, okay, when we, um, if partisanship is a very consistent factor when it comes to um, how people do or do not adopt health policy, um, what is your advice for? going forward with this and then not just now but like 10 20 years from now uh when we have another thing that we need to worry about that we need to get people on board with and we need people to adopt certain behaviors and so on what would you say is your prescriptive advice given all this right well so if i could go back in time my prescriptive advice would have been and was in march right that the doctors should have been out front from the very beginning and the politicians playing a supporting role and agreeing with them right so it should have been Fauci and Burks and others um, at the state level being out front, doing the messaging and getting lots of support from the political leadership um, at the press conferences on every news station. Um, they should have been setting policy and there should have been massive coordination from the federal and state government. Right? Clearly that didn't happen. But now, given that we have this politicization of health policy, I think it's really incumbent on the president and the Republican Party, and you're seeing more of this, right, to reiterate with a very strong message, this is what we need to do, we need to wear masks, right, you need to keep staying home, um, and not just give up, right? So the, Trump wearing a mask this week, good, right? Um, you know, I don't think it's enough to wear it one time. It has to be a consistent kind of thing. Um, and I think it's about this kind of unified message. Um, and, you know, just also a message, a unified message about the policy, but also a unified message that we are all in this together and we owe something to one another. Um, and we, and, and, we owe it to one another to stay home when we can um, and to keep staying home as much as possible. So I think pro-social messages are, 
are pretty hard. Um, and so, but I think if we keep getting those kinds of messages, um, as opposed to the kinds of messages like, oh, well, the, you know, we must send kids back to school and we must open the economy. Um, I think if we can keep one consistent message, um, that would be much more helpful than the kind of muddled messaging that we've had. Okay, before we go, two things. One, we're going to talk to Liliana Mason one more time to hear her explain what it means to be pressured to signal at all times how you feel. But before that, let's talk to Joe Hansen from the YouTube channel It's Okay to Be Smart. Joe and I are working on a super secret project right now with James Burke, so I guess it's not too secret, but more on that when it's ready to be revealed. Recently, Joe has made a few videos about masks that have gone viral in the good sense. And one in particular is about the concerns that anti-maskers keep bringing up. It addresses those justifications and rationalizations they present for their anti-mask attitudes. I thought it would be nice to have him share that with you here, but since he's preaching to the choir... And we know that these are just justifications and rationalizations for an attitude that needs to be addressed at its source. The important thing will be for you to share his videos on your social media and demonstrate without shaming, this is how you feel and this is who you trust. So to do that, head to It's Okay to Be Smart on YouTube. And here's Joe. Why did they tell us not to wear a mask in the beginning? What's the, what was that about? From, from what we can tell, I'm not inside the mind of Tony Fauci, but from, from the clarifications that have been put out, the main concerns early on are that are the main concerns early on are that we did have small numbers of cases in the U.S. and there was very real and very appropriate concern about supplies and panic for medical grade masks. And the early the early advice was to prioritize the medical supply chain and make sure the doctors and nurses had what they need. So that early advice about Americans not wearing masks and not turning to that uh, was, I think, to lower the risk of panic buying. And also because the, the honest case numbers were very small at that time. But has that situation changed, the science and the medical advice changes with it. And again, this is just another um, uncomfortable reality of the way that, that the scientific process works, that we want the certainty in an uncertain time. And our our scientific system maybe isn't keeping up with what our emotions and our and our feelings and our worry and anxiety wants hmm. can masks absolutely protect you in a small scale epidemic or pandemic when there's very few cases the the calculus of what the benefit that you get from a mask is very different from when you have a massive out of control pandemic and a scaled deployment of something that maybe gives you a 20 to 30% protection mm -hmm. can actually be very effective when it's spread to tens to hundreds of millions of people versus the, the, the possible benefit it could have when there's a very small pandemic mm -hmm. in doing that. So mm -hmm. scaling a, a, a scaling a intervention or a, or a strategy 
that has a 20 to 30% effectiveness. And nobody knows the exact numbers for cloth masks right now, but you know, if you scale that up, then you can get a, a an effect at, at, at the population scale. So when it comes to the coronavirus is very tiny and the mask, uh, you know, you, you see some videos or some images showing that it could pass through. Uh, and so therefore it doesn't protect you. It only, and, but then also I hear like, but it does protect others. What is the like simplified science of that idea? So individual coronavirus particles are extremely small. There's something like a hundred nanometers, a hundred billionths of a meter across. And if COVID-19 was spread only by tiny coronavirus particles floating around the air by themselves, we would be in serious trouble because masks would be very bad at stopping that. But that's not how coronavirus is spread. They are, it is spread through these tiny droplets that are ejected from an infected person's mouth that are 50 to 100 times bigger than that. They are millionths of a meter across. And they're very humid. They're, they're full of water. And so a cloth or a polypropylene mask, you know, like the, the plastic surgical masks, these are actually very effective at stopping those much larger droplets. And some of this is just a problem of considering scale because it's like billions and millions of a meter are both very small things. But when you're talking about, say, like the difference between an oxygen molecule and a respiratory droplet full of coronavirus, like that's a, the difference between a baseball and the tallest building in the world. You know, they're both very small things, but one is a lot more small than the other. So these masks, the, the reason that we say that these masks are good at protecting the wearer is because they are very good at stopping those respiratory droplets that are the initial source of coronavirus being spread into the population that flies out five or six feet, that lands on surfaces, that gets on people's hands, that can spread into their mucous membranes. And those respiratory droplets, if they're allowed to float out in the air around us, they can evaporate into much smaller droplets that, again, masks are not very good at stopping. They're too small for the masks that we use. So it's just so critical at that source point to use this intervention, the mask, a couple layers of cloth to stop those respiratory droplets. Uh, one, one analogy this that I love is that like a chain link fence is horrible at stopping mosquitoes. You would never use this as a mosquito netting, right? But if the mosquitoes are flying around inside tennis balls, well, all of a sudden hmm. the fence is pretty good at stopping them. And that's what we're dealing with, with coronavirus and, and, and masks. And then the other question is the, um, some people feel like you put a mask on your face and you're the carbon, you know, they feel like they have the covers over their head and they're going to suffocate. Uh, what do we know about that? Having a mask on is not a normal feeling. We have not, we, like, we don't usually do this. I'm not a surgeon. I don't wear a mask for 12 hours a day. I've worn one in my work as a scientist, but, you know, it never feels great. It doesn't feel normal. Having your breath constricted at your face, uh, having your breath sort of restricted at your face is a weird feeling. But what we know is that that is just the mechanical interference of your breath, and it, it's it's, it's, res it's resisting it, but it's not blocking your oxygen. It's not blocking your carbon dioxide. Here's two things that cannot simultaneously be true. Your mask can't 
be so bad at stopping coronavirus that it lets all these viral particles through, but then suddenly be amazing at stopping oxygen and carbon dioxide molecules, which are even smaller than a virus. Like both of those things can't be true. So we know that it feels weird to have your breath sort of like inside and, and ejected out the sides and feel that pressure. And it can make people feel anxious. You know, it's, it's not a normal feeling, but a, a carbon dioxide molecule is again, 10 to 50,000 times smaller than the respiratory droplets that uh, a mask is, is actually stopping. Um, let's use oxygen for a case. So the air that you breathe in is like 20 to 21% oxygen. The air that you breathe out is like 16% oxygen. Your body doesn't get anywhere close to absorbing all the oxygen that you breathe in. So the air that you breathe back out still has a ton of oxygen in it. The air that you, let's do carbon dioxide. Uh, it is a risk if you get too much carbon dioxide in your blood, right? That's very scary. That's like scuba divers have to worry about this kind of thing. The air that you breathe in is about 0.04% carbon dioxide. And the air that you breathe out is about a hundred times more than that. But by simple chemistry and physics, think about that. We know that carbon dioxide molecules can fit through the mask. They are going to so rapidly diffuse away into the air around you because the concentration of carbon dioxide is so much lower around you. There's basically no risk of having a cloth or, or a surgical mask over your face and keeping the carbon dioxide near you, unless you're doing like massively cardiovascularly difficult uh, work, like running or riding a bike. Like those are people who should, who should probably talk to their doctor before they do a mask at that exerted activity. Or if you have a previously known respiratory condition, absolutely talk to your doctor. But for the vast majority of people going about their lives in normal activity, popping a mask on to run into the store for, for half hour, an hour, there's no risk of, carbon dioxide poisoning, or a lack of oxygen from wearing a normal mask. Hardcore science communication requires the ability to think outside the box. And I know that that is a often used uh, turn of phrase that has maybe lost its power. But thinking outside the box is something that, that uh, you absolutely did in one of your videos uh, recently. It was, it was actually something you put out on Twitter. Uh, and I urge everyone to follow Joe on Twitter. I'll give you his handle. What is your handle, Joe? At Dr. Joe Hansen. At Dr. Joe Hansen. This is something I would like you to send to all of your friends because it is, if, if you wanted the, the clearest but not cleanest way to communicate, look, masks work for a very specific reason. Uh, it's something you did with farts. What is, what is that? So sometimes <laughs> you make lemonade out of lemons in the world. And I started seeing this response pop up that I laughed at to begin with. And that is, if my pants and underwear can't stop a fart, then how can a mask stop the coronavirus? <laughs> and I immediately dismissed this. But, you know, but like I said, you got to make lemonade out of lemons sometimes. Mm -hmm. Let's use this as an opportunity for communication because it can actually teach us some really important things about why masks work. So just like the carbon dioxide that we breathe out, the oxygen that we breathe in, fart smell molecules, things like hydrogen sulfide are very, very tiny. And respiratory droplets full of coronavirus is, again, it's five to 10,000 times bigger than that. So I made a little scale animation trying to, so people could really grok this and see it with their own eyes and zoom out and see what the real difference between these things were. And 
it's funny, but you know, we've all, we've all smelled a fart. That's like sort of this like universal experience. And I don't want anybody strapping masks, you know, into their underwear to try to test this or anything, but the things that it can teach us are that it is okay to breathe with a mask on because that's the same reason that we can smell a fart. Everything's become a signal and please correct me if I'm wrong. It just feels this way. Um, if the mask is a signal of whether or not I'm us versus them, it feels like literally everything is like, there's not a single choice I can make anymore that I don't have to think, have a, a, a metacognition about that says, what will this say about me when I walk outside? Uh, and the same is true for everything that I communicate, uh, via professionally or social media or otherwise. Um, so my question to you is like, is that just how it's always been? And for some reason now it feels, um, like now we're just noticing it in a way we haven't before or the, or is, uh, is it bad or good that this is a thing? Like I've, I've seen hot takes on both sides of the idea. Like it's okay that we signal our, our sort of our identity and our values and our morality through overt signaling of all sorts of kind, all sorts of, all sorts of ways. Um, and the mask is like, okay, and now the mask part of that too. Um, so I guess it's a, if I was going to boil that down into a question is, is that something we've always done or, and it's just more apparent now, or is it, are the stakes actually higher? And the second question in that would be, is it good or bad? Yeah. So the first thing, so the first part of the question is like, uh, can I, can I walk around without signaling anything anymore? Right. And the, the answer to that is if you're a white person, you can, but black people have never been able to do that. Mm. Right. Um, like black people have, have never had the freedom to go outside and have people not make assumptions about them. Um, and so this really is, you know, in a sense, this, this is a problem for white people. Um, and white men in particular, in that they can't just walk around and be the normal person, huh. right? You can't be the default American if if someone's allowed to tell you what to do with your face, right? Or if what you do with your face signals something about you politically that you don't want to signal. But we've always had this idea that, you know, the normal American, the typical American is just a white man. And th this is really forcing upon white men this idea that, like, no, you also have to make a signal. Like, you're you're forced now to be to make it clear which side you're on when you walk out the door, which you know, which women and black people have never been able to do. Hmm. Um, and and that puts them in again this this kind of inferior or at least equal position with people who have always had to struggle with these issues, and 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 creates this divide between you know white people who who will wear the mask and white people who won't who won't wear the mask and so you can you can tell politics between two white men you know by which one is wearing a mask and it's it's a, it has become a signifier for all kinds of you know really dumb reasons but but it but it effectively is now and and so yeah this it forces white people to actually 
betray their political loyalties walking down the street. And they never had to do that before. My science is only that of epiphany. I'm like, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) I've literally never thought of it in this way at all, at all, at all. And that's because I'm a white dude. Huh. Yeah, no, I mean, I actually, you know, right after uh, 2016, I had, I sort of had this (laughs) revelation because I had um, a political t-shirt and uh, I was going to go out for a run and I was going to wear it. And I realized that people might get mad at me for wearing that shirt and that, you know, that a man in particular could get mad at me and, and I would be in danger. So I changed the shirt. And I went running in a different shirt, just like a nondescript shirt. And at that moment, I realized a black woman can't do that, hmm. right? She, she can't just go change her shirt. Um, and that was something that I had, I could do as a white woman to protect myself, right? To make it, to make me less of a target to someone who might wish violence upon me for my political views. Um, but that was, but that was a, a, a privileged place that I was in because I could just turn around and change the shirt. So. I have been thinking about this for, for a while at this point. Um, and even though I'm not a, specifically a scholar of race in American politics, increasingly as I study partisanship in American politics, I'm forced to become a scholar of race in American politics because they're inextricable at this point. You can't, you cannot, you cannot divide race from partisanship at this point in 2020 anymore. Hmm. And so when I answer about part, partisan motivated reasoning, always in the back of my mind is, what's going on racially as well. is a professor of government and politics at the University of Maryland. You can find her on Twitter at Lily Mason PhD. Her book is Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. Shanna Gadarian is a professor of political science at Princeton University. You can find her at her website, which is sgadaria.expressions.syr.edu. That's a little too much, but you can play it back. It's probably easier to find her on Twitter. She is at S-G-A-D-A-R-I-A-N. It was one of the ways we first communicated. There was a tweet that went out that showed someone who was very upset that Joe Biden asked people to wear masks. But then when they saw Donald Trump wearing a mask, they said, wow, look how good he looks in that mask. Everybody should be wearing masks, which is just an example of the entire thing we've been talking about. You can find Dr. Johansson on Twitter at Dr. Johansson. That's D-R Johansson. He's also on YouTube. It's okay to be smart is his channel there. Also, he's a scientist too. He's a biologist. But these days, he's definitely doing science communication at It's Okay to Be Smart, part of PBS Digital Studios. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com. For all the past episodes, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. You can also go to youarenotsosmart.com. We can also find the show notes and links 
to all sorts of other cool stuff. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at David McCraney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. That's right. It started out as a blog, and now I'm stuck with that handle. Also, we're on Facebook, slash You Are Not So Smart. And if you'd like to support the one-person operation you're listening to, go to patreon.com slash You Are Not So Smart. It's really helpful right now with Corona making it really strange in the podcast space. And uh, your support means a lot. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad-free, but the higher amounts gets you posters, T-shirts, signed books, and other stuff like that. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. This music is by Mogwai. Both the music in the show this episode is by Mogwai. You can tell everyone you know about this show, and that would be really cool. I would like that. And check back in two weeks for a fresh new episode. See you then. Thank you.